confidence in the end result. And also, I guess as a side note to that, that the end result is not always the end result we want, but the end result that's best for God has a plan. So we're going to take a look at a passage in Acts, but before we get to that, we're going to take a look. We're not going to read it, but I'm going to talk about Hebrews 11 a little bit. This is a well-known passage to many of you. It's referred to often as the heroes of faith passage or account. It lists a great number of Old Testament examples of faith. In the passage, there's at least 16 individuals listed. Also, groups of people are listed, and prophets are lumped together as well as a group. So he's talking about a lot of people as examples to us. And the reason I want to take a look first at Hebrews 11 before we get to this Acts passage that I want to look at is that uh, with miracles uh, and many Christians as well as people that are outside of the church sometimes have trouble understanding why is it that sometimes we pray for the sick and they are healed and other times we pray for the sick and they are not healed. And uh, there are people that will say, well, if your faith is strong and you just speak it out, then your prayers will be answered. But then that becomes confusing because probably all of us know someone who seems to be a godly Christian, full of faith, and then all of a sudden they get cancer. All of a sudden they have an accident and, or they sudden heart attack or something like that. And if it was hinging on their faith, we say, well, how could that be? On one hand, someone will say that it's unfair that God heals one and not another. And on the other hand, some would say, well, healing's already been given to all, and if everyone would just have the faith to believe in their healing, then they would receive it. But when we look at Scripture and see that faith is a gift given by God in His grace, then it would be His gift, giving of a gift of faith that determines the healing as well, because faith uh, is the prerequisite according to those that would hold to that doctrine. Yet not all people have such a strong faith. And, and I would argue, I think only a dishonest person would claim they never have had a moment of doubt. I just don't think that's realistic. So how does our faith correspond to the working of miracles such as healing? And how can we pray with confidence in God's mercy through healing despite the fact that not all in the church are healed of every sickness. If God gives the faith, and not everyone has the same amount of faith, then how could it be that perfect faith was the only way to get healing? It just can't be. And if it were as simple as just declaring our faith and seeing the miraculous happen, well then why didn't Paul just declare himself rid of the thorn in his flesh? Why didn't he tell Timothy to declare physical health instead of saying, hey, take some wine for your stomach? Now, there's not any easy answers to this because we hear different teachings sometimes and we're conflicted. Some will say the stripes of Jesus were for our healing and it's already completed and the Christian with good faith simply can declare the blessing of healing and it's, as it's already happened. And yet many devout believers who believe that are not healed. Many who have prayed for family members to be well have not seen their prayers answered. If perfect faith is the requirement, then we shouldn't expect any healing. We, 
we don't have perfect faith, and nobody does. In Hebrews 11, and that's why I'm looking at that, we look at a list of people who are listed as people with great faith, and yet every single one of those people we know from Scripture did not have perfect faith. Each is given as an example of faith. Here's, a few, here's the names of the ones who are named. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, the people of Israel. That's a pretty broad list, right? Of when they were crossing the Red Sea and seeing the Jer- walls of Jericho fall. Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. All listed as examples to consider to strengthen our faith. And yet none of them had perfect faith. All of them had doubts at times. And failures at times. Since faith is part of believing and obeying God, one would have to have perfect faith. They would have to be perfect to have perfect faith. And Jesus said there's no one perfect except God, even though he commanded us to be perfect. So look at the best known names of the heroes of the faith list. Did Noah have perfect faith? He had good faith. Was he perfect? Scripture tells us he was not perfect. And despite the fact that he was said to be a righteous man, he also sinned. After all the miracle of the flood and his salvation from the flood by the, the ark, he landed, and what did he do? As soon as he could get some grape plants growing, he made wine, he got drunk, his son saw him naked, and, and uh, this is after he had watched the whole earth being purged because of sin. Abraham had faith. Was it perfect? If it was, he would not have tried to jumpstart God's promise by sleeping with Sarah's slave, nor would have he lied about uh, Sarah being his sister, not his wife. And uh, if that had happened, then uh, things might have been different, but we know he didn't have perfect faith either. Sarah laughed when she heard that she was going to have a child, and yet she's listed as a faith hero. Moses had faith, but he didn't see the promised land because he didn't have perfect faith. Remember, he struck the rock. He was barred from entering the promised land, and yet he's listed as a hero of the faith. Gideon, Barak, Samson, and the rest, including the prophets, are all listed as heroes of the faith, but Scripture records that every one of them had moments of failure. Every one. No one is perfect but God. So I think it's safe to put to rest the idea that perfect faith is required for healing or for miracles to take place. Because nobody is completely doubt-free. Because if we say we're without doubt regarding God, we're basically saying we're sinless. Because really, all all sin roots itself in a lack of faith in God's word. The faith celebrated in Hebrews 11 is not a perfect faith. It's not faith that never had a moment of doubt. It's a decision to trust God in every circumstance and always believe that what he has promised is true, even if we cannot see it. Faith is not believing what is seen or what, or what can be proven, but believing what is unseen and what cannot be proven by the scientific method. So when we look back at Hebrews 11, we see that the writer has given many examples of faith And every example that's given is a flawed person who, despite their flaws, decided to believe God. 
despite what they could see, they decided to believe in something unseen. One writer said of the faith listed in Hebrews 11, faith is shown to be a temporal orientation to the future. The eschatological, that is, forward-looking character of faith, invests the realm of objective hopes and promises with solidity. It is the property of faith to render hope secure. The writer finds in faith a substantiation of hopes as yet unrealized and events as yet unseen. Faith celebrates now the reality of the future blessings that are secured by the promise of God. It holds that it is the future and not the past that molds the present. By conferring upon objects of hope the force of present realities, faith enables the people of God to enjoy the full certainty of their future realization. Now we're going to get to that passage I said in Acts shortly, but as we look at that, I want you to think about these things. Ask yourself some questions about the faith that you have about the faith that others have, about the doubts and the fears that you might have, and how can you overcome this? When all of it is said and done, the most important aspect of faith is the final end, the end of times, when those with true faith in Jesus Christ and the promises of the Father and the security that rests in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, those people will culminate their whole existence in that glorious day when all of the trials and the questions and the doubts and the insecurities will finally be put to rest because the person of faith has persevered to the end despite the weaknesses and doubts. The believer has to look forward with expectation and hope that the God of the Bible and his son Jesus will complete the work began and bring us into the everlasting kingdom of heaven. And this hope doesn't come from books who ha about people who claim they've vacationed in heaven or by fanciful ideas about what our heavenly mansions will look like or what color horse we might have or something like that. The hope comes from the living God who gives all things, including faith. And even the saved person can claim no merit in the salvation they have received because the Bible says that even the very faith we have is a gift. We, we can't muster up faith to believe. We can't concentrate or speak words that give us faith. Faith is given by God. And he, by his grace, has given the elect, as Ephesians puts it, all that we need for salvation. God, in his grace, gave the sacrifice. And God, in his grace, gives the faith to believe that sacrifice is sufficient. And I believe that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is sufficient for me, for you, and for everyone who believes. My faith is not perfect, though. I have doubt from time to time. I have known people who had great faith and remained sick. I've known people who raised their children well and watched them walk away from the God. I've seen financial ruin come upon people who are great servants of the Lord and asked why. Why them and not the person who's more evil or something like that. Even David struggled with this in some of the Psalms. But despite my doubts, 
And even with my failure to have perfect faith, I know that God is sovereign over all affairs of men, including myself, including this church, including our nation. We look at what has happened to many good people and, and we want to question God, right? As many prophets and even those heroes of the faith sometimes question God. But in the end, what will matter is not the moments of confusion or frustration that God hasn't worked everything out the way you expect it. It will matter if you have persevered in believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and you have made him Lord of your life and just like the traditional marriage vows, you have taken him as your own for better or for worse, for richer or poorer, for si in sickness and in health, to love, cherish, and obey. When our commitment to him is strong enough to see us stay faithful, even when we can't see why and how things are working out as they are, then we will have been preserved or we will have persevered. When we have loved him and his laws as many times as we are told both in the Old and New Testaments and follow his ways, then we will have persevered. We have this word, the perseverance of the saints, and some, some people have changed that to say actually it's the preservation of the saints. It's God that does the preserving. And I agree with that. We must take it to the end. We must stay faithful. We must have the faith that says, I believe in all of God's promises, all of his warnings, all of his statutes, and I will serve him not because of what he can do for me, but because of what he has already done for me. And with that kind of faith, then, we can pray in his name for the sick and for peace in the world. We can even pray for the dead to be raised. And it doesn't matter whether the results are always favorable in our eyes. We trust him that as the sovereign God of all, that all things work together for the good of those that what? Love him. Remember that faith is given to us. We can't force it. We can't create it with our words. We can, but we can pray like the man who had the demon-possessed son who said, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. And because this uh, confession he made to Christ said, I believe, help my unbelief. In other words, I have faith. I want to have more faith, but I'm deficient in my faith. Help my deficiency. And because of that honest prayer, the Savior showed his grace and answered the man's prayer, and both in regards to his son and in regards to his faith, because I'm pretty sure that the healing helped his unbelief, don't you think? So when he said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, and Jesus healed his son, that was an answer to both prayers. The very faith of our salvation is given to us, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. What does he mean by this? And this is not your own doing. The this refers to the faith. And this the faith is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. Now, I've deliberately spent some time here speaking of faith as a gift so that we could get into this passage of Acts I was working up to. 
and see how the gifts of faith that God gave Peter is in one way it's available to all believers. In another way, it, it seems to be that Peter had a special gift of healing as well. So Acts chapter 9, verses 32 and thir- to 35 first. Now as Peter went there and went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he arose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him. And they turned to the Lord. So Peter is going all over the place, doing the work of an apostle. At Lydda he finds this man who's been paralyzed for eight years, We know that healing happened in Acts and the Gospels. Sometimes people who are recently afflicted and sometimes people who had been afflicted even from a birth defect, such as the blind man from birth that Jesus healed. So there's no reason for us to assume that there is any case that we cannot seek God's help for healing. We can pray for healing from something as minor as a stubbed toe, And we can pray for healing from cancer, heart disease, and even physical issues that are accidentally inflicted. All of them. We should never hesitate to pray for anything that would provide comfort or restore mobility or anything like that. Any physical problem is eligible for us to pray for. Now, I'm focused mostly this morning on physical healing, but have no doubts in your mind of this. I am of the opinion, and I'm pretty sure that Scripture backs this up, that there are other types of healing that are even more important than physical healing. Emotional healing for those who have been through tragedy or heartache. Spiritual healing for those who have been damaged by sin. And relational healing. First, the relationship between God and man, which is severed by sin. And secondly, relations among people, which is severed by sin. It would be another sermon altogether, but perhaps sometime I'll do that. But there are many students of the Bible that think when Isaiah was referring to those types of healing more than physical healing when he prophesied by his stripes we were healed. And there's a good argument to be made for that as well. Remember that focuses of the prophets were primarily about sin, repentance, and God's relation to people and his restoration of all people. What I'm saying is that when you consider the word healing in Scripture, whenever you run across it, it's including much more than just physical healing. Emotional healing, spiritual healing, and relational healing are all involved in the atonement. So many times, we don't pray for things because we're so accustomed to those things that they're normal. For example, we don't normally pray for a nearsighted person, person to not need glasses anymore. Although, when I was a boy, I sure did. And why not? Well, maybe because we know they can go to the optometrist and get some glasses, and that's become more affordable all the time, so we'll do that. So we don't usually pray for the nearsighted person, but we will pray for someone who's just had trauma to their eye, or we'll pray for someone who's got cataracts or macular de- degeneration. And we don't generally pray for people's hearing because, well, they can just go get some hearing aids or we can yell at them. 
And besides that, people with hearing loss often don't admit it anyway, do they? So we know that's true. So the means are there to offer relief or at least some correction for nearsightedness or bad hearing, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't pray in faith for healing from those things. But what kind of faith does it take to see those types of healing when we don't need that reliance on God because medical science has come so far? And this is something that we can think about from time to time. A pastor I know, he went on a missions trip to a poor country and he didn't know the native language, so they had assigned him a translator to help him communicate, and there was a prayer service. And they were praying and praying, and the translator said, okay, well, right now they're praying for people's teeth. And the pastor was puzzled, and most of us in our situation, we would be puzzled by that, because I don't think anyone has ever come and said, please pray for my teeth. I've never seen it in any church I've been to. Now, sometimes the church might help pay the dental bill they might come and say i need to go have my tooth pulled please help me but we don't actually hear many people asking to have their teeth prayed for why because we don't feel the need to rely on god for that which we can accomplish ourselves but the interpreter said well there's only a few dentists in the whole country in this particular place and the vast majority of the population would never be able to afford to go and so they would often pray for healing of teeth in their congregation. And they very often saw healing of those teeth. If we have faith that God is going to complete all that he said, and if we believe that our salvation is safe, and if we believe that Jesus is coming again to set right all that is wrong in the world, then why can't we have the faith to believe that God can heal teeth or eyes or hearing? Should we not pray for these as well? Or male part of the pattern, baldness? <laughs> I'm kidding. That's vanity. Vanity, all vanity. Okay. By the way, I'm not advocating for anyone to ever reject medical help. Sometimes God's healing comes through the skill of a surgeon or through antibiotics that have been developed to offset the curse that is on the earth because of sin. However, I believe the life of a Christian should be marked by what is actually one of our denomination's core values, which is called faith-filled risk. We should faithfully live our lives in a way that reflects our total trust and dependence on the God of creation, who will one day restore that creation to what he designed it to be. Now, Peter had a special gift of healing. We know this from Scripture, and uh, I'm going to talk about this a little more in the next miracle story. But here he just makes a simple statement. Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. How did Peter know that Aeneas would be healed? Think how embarrassing it would have been if he said those words and how much his distractors would have mocked him if he made that bold statement and even the man struggled to get up but never did. Be a little embarrassing, wouldn't it? Well, it seems that he had a special gift of healing as an apostolic gift. And Jesus had predicted that when he, uh, when he gave the Great Commission in the end of, chap uh, the, end of the Gospel of Mark. Now, along with the Acts accounts of healing, we know that, the, that praying for healing is appropriate for the church today. 
because special authority is given for elders to pray for the sick, as outlined in James 5, starting at verse 13. And it says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So uh, there's several things that, that are important in this little passage about calling on the elders. One is that it's, a, it's kind of given as a command. If you're sick, call on the elders. Let them pray. Anointing with oil. Is the oil what heals? No, it's God who heals. Uh, and, and they're to come. But then he also links in verse 16 the confession of sins to that. Why, was that. why is that there? Why is it linked together? Well, maybe God's getting our attention and, let it, and, and we're sick and we need to confess something to him so that we can be free to receive his healing. That could be the case as well. And we can't ever assume that either because Jesus also said about the blind man, neither he nor his parents sinned. This is to show the glory of God. So we don't want to assume someone's been sinning and that's why they're sick. But at the other, on the other hand, we don't want to neglect that part of Scripture which tells us that we need to do confession along with that. And then it says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And this is the reason you come to the elders of the church and ask for prayer, because their prayer can have great power as it is working. It's not a prayer, it's not a verse that should be separated out by itself. In fact, if you read all of 16, the prayer of a righteous person is directly connected then to confession of sins. So those are some of the conditions there. All, all biblical promises have conditions. People don't like to hear that sometimes, but that's the truth. The elders must pray a prayer of faith. That means they have to have faith in their hearts that says, I believe that God can heal this person. Also, they are to counsel the sick person to confess any sin that they might have that might be keeping them from receiving healing. And we're to confess sins to one another. And I have a quote here I'm going to put up for you. C.H. Spurgeon, you've heard me quote him before. I love this quote. If you do not like to be told the truth about sin, it is a sure sign that your heart is not right in the sight of God. All right, let's look at the next miracle here in Acts chapter 9, starting at 36. This is Dorcas. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men with him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made when she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed and turned to 
Turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. I want to talk a little bit more about Peter's spiritual gift of healing. He clearly had a spiritual gift of healing. That's why they called on him when Dorcas died. Paul was 10 miles away in Lydda, and they sent for him. Now think about that. No cars or railroads or buses 10 miles away. So in our context, is that about from here to your farm, Glade, roughly? Maybe close to that? So it would be like walking to Glade's house from here. And uh, we probably wouldn't send someone on foot to run out there, would we? We would get the car. Or in the springtime, the helicopter maybe, because your roads are washed out. (laughs) But I think it's safe to assume that prayers were made before Peter came, don't you think? Do you think the first thing they did was say send for Peter? No, I'm sure that they prayed too. The disciples knew though that Peter had this kind of special gift. And also they knew that he was relatively nearby, so they sent for him. And today, every Christian just as then has the ability and obligation to pray for brothers and sisters in Christ. And today, just as then, it's perfectly acceptable and appropriate to call on someone to pray with us. God has given that gift to glorify himself and to edify the church and to remind us of his sovereignty. And what greater uh, privilege do we have than when someone in the body calls upon us to pray? And as I've mentioned before, James tells us to call upon the elders when we're sick. The elders have to take this seriously as well. They have to keep themselves in good spiritual training to be ready to pray that prayer of faith that James says will heal the sick. So we must follow Scripture. Now, should we pray for the dead person? This is the question. You know, I remember uh, when Janelle's dad died, the pastor there did pray that he would be brought back. And is there any reason not to do that? Well, why not? Except that if they've already gone to heaven, they might not be too pleased if they were pulled back to earth. But I've heard of areas in the world where Christians will gather whenever someone in the congregation dies and they would pray for three and a half hours. And if by that time the person had not been raised, they would mourn and prepare the body for burial. The sense of urgency with Dorcas was not only the distance that Peter had to travel, but also the fact that in their tradition, burial has to take place before sunset. So it was either raise her up and bur- or bury her. The clock was ticking. And even if Peter had jogged the distance, it clearly was a good period of time between her death and his arrival. So she was certainly dead by then. No CPR, no defibrillator, nothing like that. Just a prayerful man with a gift of healing. And I can't help but feel empathy for those poor people who are mourning for her. Uh, Just as we do when a person passes away, they were showing, oh, here's something she made, talking about good deeds she did. And For Peter's part as a good minister, he left immediately to be there. It is interesting that he did not immediately lay hands on her. That would have made him unclean because touching a body of a deceased person would make a Jewish person unclean. But instead, after she opens his eyes, then she sits up and then he gives her his hand. And that miracle, Scripture tells us, resulted in many believing in the Lord. So there's no doubt that healing miracles and the raising of Dorcas are compassionate acts of mercy. In this case, Dorcas was in a ministry She was full of good works. She was full of acts of charity. 
many people were devastated by her death, and it was a loss to the community. And uh, many times when someone's healed, it's taken by us to be for the purpose of blessing the healed person or their family or other loved ones. But the real purpose when God does anything miraculous, including healing, is to glorify who? Himself. And to point people to him. No one has perfect faith. Even those listed as I went through the heroes of faith, they had flaws. Even Peter who we're just talking about, who was instrumental in so many miracles, was not perfect in his faith. I don't think we need to be reminded of the whole rooster incident, right? But God uses broken vessels. He can use you too. All of us have not just the opportunity to pray for others, but we have an obligation to. When someone's sick, when someone's suffering emotionally, when someone is in need of provision, we should pray. In all of those circumstances, we need to remember the most important result of our faith, which is the final result. When we gather at the marriage supper of the Lamb and shout as one at, with joy because all of the things he has been planning have been culminating into that, when we worship the Lamb and sing to him in the greatest worship service of all time, then we will finally realize the end of our faith. We should pray for the sick with faith that God can heal. We should pray for the unsaved with faith that God's word can pierce their hearts. And when our prayers seem to be unanswered and we can't figure out the plan of God in certain situations, we must rest in him, knowing that someday we will see him complete the work he began. So Peter had the gift of healing. His gift was evident. The Bible says we all have a spiritual gift. Have you discovered your spiritual gift? Maybe it's evangelism or healing or prophecy or mercy or hospitality or one of the many other gifts, each of which are to be used. What's your gift? And if you don't know, pray that God would reveal that to you. Talk with people that know you well, mature Christians. They, they may have noticed a gift within you that you don't know about yet because... Sometimes someone else has to see that. Peter's gift was important to the early church. Many in the church were healed, and many outsiders were healed as well. Sometimes the healing was a boost to the Christian community, and other times it led many outside the Christian community to become part of it. And sometimes it was both. But healing is not the only spiritual gift, and we are to accept the gift we do have and to use it. We're not to despise the gifts we're given. Pray that God would reveal to you your spiritual gift, and then learn how to use and share it. And if you don't have the gift of healing or even the gift of faith, you can still pray for the sick. And I'm going to close this morning just with that challenge, that we obey Scripture. When, when we're sick, we call upon the elders who will pray for you. And that is our privilege to do so. And... Uh, and we, we don't always make a big deal of that, but we, we always say any time on a Sunday morning or even during the week that you need a prayer, uh, you can get a hold of us. So even this morning, if that's something you would like to have done for you, prayer, all us elders find it, I don't know about you guys, I sure take it as a privilege to pray for that, so we'll be happy to do it. So I'm going to close with prayer. Do we have a final song? Okay. And uh, we'll close with a song. So, Lord, thank you for your gift this morning to all of us. 
I pray that we would be people of those beatitudes, Lord, that we would realize our spiritual poverty and that we would humbly come to you to meet all of our needs, including healing. And Lord, I pray that we would always be obedient to your word and do it as you've called us to do. When we're sick, may we call upon the elders of the church that the prayer of the righteous man linked to the confession of sins, Lord, can redeem all things. Lord, help our faith to be strong as we see not always our prayers answered at the timing or in the way that we would want. But help us to trust in you, knowing that you have worked all things out for the good of those who love you. And I pray, Lord, that each in this congregation would be people known for their love of you. Amen.